What's up, guys? Welcome to episode number 31 of the Joe Ciccarelli Show. Today's chat is with a good friend of mine, Eric Lux, or Lux, as some of you might know him. I went to school with uh, Eric. I feel weird calling him Eric because I always call him Lux, so I'm going to call him Lux. I think you guys got it. Uh, I went to school with him at, uh, J- at uh, JU up in Jacksonville, so uh, a lot of friends in there will obviously know him. And uh, I'm sure I've had other friends come to visit. And what makes Lux so interesting is he's like a normal college dude, right? Like I went to school with him. I partied with him. I did all the things that we can't talk about on live air with him and all that sort of stuff. Or maybe we can, but not at this stage on this show. Um, And and on the side, he was actually a professional race car driver. And um, as I've kind of, you know, during college, it was like, oh, this dude's a oh, this dude's like a professional race car driver. He would kind of like disappear on weekends to go to like races and we'd just be like, okay, who gives a shit? Like, where are we drinking tonight? What are we doing? Where's the party at? Uh, and all that sort of stuff. So it's funny when, and I'm sure you guys know whether you, you know, went to college or uni or just enjoyed your early 20s, you, that was kind of the most important thing. So now kind of as a mature adult that I am now, uh, I step back and uh, when I was kind of preparing to kind of reach out to people for the show, I just, and I would, I would urge you to do this. Go Google his name. And uh, he's got like a lot of awards. He's very well known. Um, and so I don't want to give too much background on like the type of racing he's in. I mean, it's, you know, um, he's done a lot of F1, uh, but I, I don't know a ton about that. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to him is because one, you know, I wanted, I think he'd be an interesting guy to talk to, um, to learn about that side of things, but also, um, I wanted to learn more about racing and I have being, having now lived overseas, I see how big of a deal racing is. And I think that was a part of it for me too, being in the U S racing's big, but it's kind of big in its own crowd. Uh, we're interested in football. We're interested in baseball, basketball, uh, hockey, whatever it is for me, obviously lacrosse, some of you as well. If you listened to my episode last week, um, so when I went overseas, it was like, wow, like F1 racing is like a massive deal. I have a good friend of mine that I live with, um, in Dubai and his job is to like do marketing and stuff for this stuff. So these are like massive international brands, which again, a lot of you are probably listening to this and you're like, duh, what are you a moron? And I, I, I probably was. So at some stage along the way, I've kind of connected the dots and I'm like, Hey, this is really cool stuff. And I want to learn more about it. So I want to talk to an expert. And so that's what we talk about. If you're into racing or you want to learn about, if you're into racing, like this is going to be an incredible episode because he just goes into like intense detail on like how it works and what he does. If you're kind of like, hey, this sounds cool. I'm not really sure. And I want to learn a little bit. I try to slow him down as much as I can and be like, whoa. So like break this down for me and like a person who doesn't know shit terms. Um, so you, you, you can learn something from this too. Um, and then, you know, we talk a little bit about other things as well. He was also, uh, we didn't get too much into this, but was really big into snowboarding. I think he was part of the Olympic development team at one stage. So he's just a really interesting uh, character. He works for a family business now up in Williamsville, uh, New York, which is basically the Buffalo area. And I've been up there to visit him a couple times. A couple times, I've actually been to one of his races. He's got a cool charms business, Rembrandt Charms. You can check them out as well. Uh, and that's really it. There's not a whole lot more to intro him. Um, I think I've done him justice. Uh, and so I'll let you guys take it from here and I hope you enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, it's funny that you and I have known each other for honestly a while now. And, uh, we've, we've, um, we've done a lot together, um, that we could talk about and that we shouldn't talk about, um, on live air and, uh, College will do that. Yeah, college will do that to you. And so um, I guess where I want to start in today is like one of the things that we we didn't – and I've been to, to your racing. I've actually been up and been to your racing at Watkins Glen. But uh, I was kind of doing some prep for the interview, and I'm like, this shit's fucking really interesting, man. And so I want to take you back to – what was it, 2006, where you had like an all-star year. You were like the youngest racer to win – was it an IMSA race? It was, uh, I was the youngest racer in 2006 to win a professional race at Daytona, uh, at the Daytona Speedway, but also in the series at the time, the Grand American uh, uh, Series. Uh, I believe I was 17 years old and had just signed with Porsche Motorsports Tapple Racing uh, for a multi-year contract. And uh, that was how we started the season. So it was a 
It was actually I won it with a separate Porsche team for that that uh, that race. It was a Grand Am Cup 200 race, which was on a Friday, and then the 24-hour race of Daytona uh, was Saturday. So I was doing this race before the big race uh, with a separate team, but also with Porsche. Uh, so it was a nice way to start the season. Just you know, it was supposed to be kind of a fun race. Um, get back into the swing of things after a little bit of time off. And uh, we ended up pulling it off and winning. So and we went into the race. I think we qualified on pole for the Brolex 24 Hours at Daytona that year, or maybe it was 2007. It's, all the races are a bit of a blur now. Yeah. Um, and we had, we had a, great, a great showing. Um, and then I believe we had some mechanical issues after about 12 or 13 hours into it and had to, had to fall down the ladder a little bit. But, uh, yeah, Daytona always has a special place in my heart for – uh, that victory in particular, but just in general, the 24-hour races and, and everything that happens in those. Yeah, so do, I mean, talk about that for a second. So uh, you're you're 17, so we're, we're the same age. So right around that same time, I was getting out of lacrosse practice and lighting up a joint in the backseat of my car with a bunch of my high school buddies, and you're winning some fucking national race. Um, what was that like at your age to kind of be put on that sort of platform and to deliver at that level? It's all I, um, honestly, it's, it's all I really knew outside of that and working at the family business, working at some race shops in the area in Buffalo, New York. Um, and I, you know, I always had multiple jobs growing up, but my goal was to either be snowboarding, which I did competitively for a long time, um, or to be at a racetrack. And, uh, both my parents raced back in the 80s. They were the first husband and wife couple to race in IMSA Firehawk Firestone Series. Really? And they did that for a couple of years until my mom got badly injured, um, was paralyzed for a little bit, had to re- rehab, um, and wasn't able to race again. She's able to have pretty much rest of her life back to normal, can walk fine, um, but can never race again. After that, my dad took uh, a little bit of a calmer route instead of doing the pro racing and went towards the vintage racing. So I grew up in the vintage races, just always seeing it, being part of the teams, being in everyone's way, and uh, got into go-karts at an early age, like seven years old, and climbed the ladder in go-karts, winning regional and national championships, uh, and got my first chance into a car at 13 when a few of the friends from the vintage racing snuck me into a school, a racing school that they were instructors with. They uh, forged the documents so I could get in. You had to be 16 at the time. So they did that for two years in a row for me so I could get seat time and experience. And they let me do the schools. It was Panos Racing School. They're, they're no longer around, so I can say it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they, they got me in. And, and uh, by 15, I was racing in the historic sports car racing series, uh, the vintage racing. And I think I was the youngest driver at that point in the country to be racing in a car, like a licensed, actually licensed driver. Um, but it was a bit of a dilemma because at 16, I was able to, the day I turned 16, I was able to jump in a car and race, but normally you'd have to go and do your driver school and everything else. So they were kind of confused how I could have gotten my license already at that point. And, and, uh, fortunately I had a few people in my corner, um, pushed to make it happen and, and I was able to start early. Uh, I, I know one other person's come from that, kind of similar path, uh, who's well known as Austin Sindrick, who was the NASCAR Xfinity champion last year. Uh, also started in vintage racing at 16 in HSR and, uh, and has had a, a brilliant career. And honestly, he's, he's, he's an up and coming star that's driving for Penske racing right now. One of the best teams in NASCAR. Um, and it's going to have a long, very successful career in NASCAR. So Kind of cool to share that entry point with him because it's not your normal entry point. A lot of these kids, you know, you get in the go-karts and you go to Europe um, at a young age, you know, younger than seven, eight, nine years old. You go to Europe and, and that's where your life is for the next 15 years. Uh, going to school, it's a, a boarding school, and, and you go in the, in the go-karts into the formula cars and, and you go that direction. And, and either you make it all the way up to the top in the formula cars or you run out of sponsorship or, or talent or both and, uh, you come back and you try to find something else in, in North America if you can or anywhere else in, in the world. Um, and then in the U.S., you take go-karts, and if you don't go that direction, you either look at going into NASCAR or IndyCar, um, and occasionally some go into sports cars. Um, sports cars is kind of the catch-all where you get the best of NASCAR, the best of IndyCar, the best of F1, the best of sports cars um, as far as driver talent goes. So you, 
you have all of these different uh, drivers come from different driving backgrounds and compete in these long endurance races that are usually 6, 12, 24 hours. And it's uh, a pretty amazing showing just with the diversity in the, in the roster. Yeah. So, all right. There's two types that we, we talked about this before. There's two types of people that are listening to this that probably listen, uh, maybe, and there's a third type that's somewhere in between. One type is like, they know all about this stuff and everything you just said, like they get like the names and what, I, mean, I think we all know what Penske means, but what does that mean in racing? You know, some people would know that. And then there's a second group of people that, um, <laughs> largely Americans that are more focused or North Americans that are more focused on, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning the Super Bowl that don't know a lot about racing. So how, for, for that group, and we won't spend too much time on this, but just in general, um, and I fall into that group, uh, probably less so than others because I've done some research, but how would you classify it, right? So if you were to compare it to, because there's like, there's Rolex um, or there's IMSA, which is different than NASCAR. Um, is it like like the NFL versus like the Arena Football League and they're, one's amateur, one's per, like, how do you, how would you categorize it? Maybe if you could compare it to even... Um, European sports like the uh, Premier League or so I, I, I'm not sure but how would you explain it to an idiot that didn't know anything about racing? I think you explained it pretty well there it's there are different leagues uh, or different series different classifications um, there's everything from the guy that's going to be working on the car in his own garage rolling it out and uh, competing in, in some sort of series um, they have that they have it so you can do it on on, uh, on a budget and still get the passion fulfilled um, all the way up to technology that would rival NASA uh, with the amount of thousands of sensors that are involved in a car to find that hundreds of a second to give you the advantage over your competitors. Um, it's, it's a big money sport. And in, in the U.S., NASCAR had a lot of attention from the motorsport fans or enthusiasts uh, for a number of decades. And, and that's that's still quite strong. It's definitely tapered off in the last 10 years um, as there's kind of a generational change in NASCAR going on. And, and they're doing some soul searching as to what type of tracks and racing format that their fan base likes today. Um, mm. It seems like they're making good improvements. Um, and then you have IndyCar currently too. So that's another fan base as well. If, any, if you're watching IndyCar, generally you've watched F1, um, which competes on, on a world stage as well. Um, and if you watch F1 or IndyCar, you probably watch sports car racing. Um, so what we're seeing right now in North America is you're seeing more of the motorsport fans shift really from uh, NASCAR to elsewhere. But uh, especially there's a crossover for whatever reason with soccer fans um, across across the world. It's not just North America, but there is a, a substantial increase in, in enthusiasts in, in North America for sports car racing. Um, and it's, it's hard to say what's driving that. It could be the technology with the, what the cars represent. You know, these cars, the manufacturers test everything that they want to develop for the road cars with the racing before it goes to the road cars. So when we were at Mazda racing in a prototype class in 2012, we were developing the Sky Active technology for their hybrid system. And after it passes uh, numerous tests and, and some of the most grueling races and how it holds up, um, that's when it gets approved and it, and it goes over to the streetcar. Uh, everything from brakes to seatbelts to, uh, to the hybrid technology we're using now and, and everything from the windshield wiper blade back uh, was tested at Le Mans, at Daytona, at Sebring, at these tracks around the world. And, and uh, the U.S. is fortunate to have several great tracks that fall into that category um, where the best talents, the best drivers around the world want to partake and win. Um, and add that to their uh, uh, to the resume. So uh, it, it's it's really um, I think it's I think part of that you know the green push to see electric cars and hydrogen fuel cell cars um, and also just if efficient uh, combustion cars. Um, the attention that that's gained nationally in the last ten years has probably helped push some of those uh, those same people over to watch motorsports. In do people compete in, and maybe this is just to you, but do people compete in the different leagues? Like, so for example, someone that races, races NASCAR, are they also likely going to be in an F1 car? And, um, 
other kind of leagues, if you will, or do people really specialize? They specialize. Um, yeah. That's a good question. They specialize, but in sports car racing, in IMSA, there's two. You know, IMSA, two okay. okay. For, uh, championships in the world right now. It's World Endurance Championship, which is um, which I ran in 2013. It's, it's a terrific series. Um, and then also IMSA, which is North America um, based. Uh, those two series, they run the same cars. They have the same drivers. A lot of the drivers overlap between the two series. Mm-hmm. But for those longer races where you bring in one or two extra drivers, that's generally where we start pulling people from NASCAR, from IndyCar, from Formula One. Uh, Kevin Magnuson just made the switch from Formula One racing for Haas F1 uh, for the last few years. He just made the switch to Chip Ganassi racing in IMSA, uh, debuting the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona this year. Um uh, you're, you see more of the other series converge into IMSA and into the World Endurance Championship or WEC uh, than you would ever see crossover from like F1 to NASCAR or vice versa. You do see occasionally like Kimi Raikkonen and a few others that have, have done that jump, um, but it's not often that you see that. Usually it's sports car racing where, where you kind of get the best of all worlds. Yeah. And as far as to, to touch on your last question too, um, there are so many different levels of racing available from uh, multiple levels in, in amateur racing to uh, several of the highest professional levels of racing in, in, in the world. So you have sports cars, you have drag cars, you have NASCAR, you have IndyCar, you have F1. Uh, and that's, that's really going to be your, your bucket, except if you want to consider uh, uh, off-road championships as well, like rally cars. Rally cars, uh, stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but as far as what's happening in the U.S. right now, it's the sports car world is about to explode in 2023 with the manufacturer war that's happening. You have all of the manufacturers investing a ton of research, a ton of money, and and uh, putting together programs for 2023 that will create the next five to ten years at least of just some of the best sports car racing we'll see in our generation. Um, it's, Why 2023? It's a reformat of the uh, of the series right now, and so the new rules go into effect in 2023. Oh, okay, so everyone's getting ready for like the new the new rollout. Exactly, and and these what's spent to make this successful at the top level is just staggering. Um, you'll have a, a manufacturer like uh, say Audi or Porsche bring a couple cars and go to Le Mans and do the World Endurance Championship. And they might spend 250 to $500 million in one season on just one of their cars. So it's a billion-dollar budget. And Le Mans alone is 60 to $100 million. And you think about the marketing and all the dealerships, the showing the race cars everywhere. It's, it's an integrated plan down all the way from the smallest bit, the smallest detail, all the way to the top. Uh, so they're maximizing their marketing, their performance, their development for their street cars. Uh, keeping their brand DNA intact. Uh, it's it, it's a serious business um, at that level. Uh, and what's nice about sports car racing is you can have teams, um, privateer teams, independent teams. Like if you were to say, okay, I can get some funding, I can get some sponsorships, I want to get a team going, and if you can make that all happen and, and, uh, and you're able to do it, you can go out there and you can compete. Uh, you can bring your program, whether it's one or two cars, and you can go and compete against Audi, Porsche, Ferrari, the top manufacturers in automobile racing, and give them a run for their money on a budget that doesn't come close to theirs. So, you know, the, the budget you might need to compete against theirs for the World Endurance Championship might be closer to ten million a year rather than three hundred or four hundred or five hundred million a year. Uh, so it's it's always. Um, I guess you, you see you see a lot of fans in, in motorsports always rooting for the privateer teams, the underdogs, to try to upset uh, the top of the chart, which is always going to be the manufacturers for the most part. So how um, how what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, how structured is is the league, if you will? So, for example, like you're saying, hey, the the you're you're rooting for the underdog, the privateers. Um, but again, my mind goes to the NFL, right? Every team's kind of on an even keel, right? Now there's underdogs in a game, but everyone's kind of got the same salary cap, the same X, the same Y. That's different in racing, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, some series will have salary caps, but there's always a way around salary caps. And uh, just like in any sport, I believe, um, you know, for example, they might say, okay, you can't bring 200 personnel to the track. And a lot of those personnel are going to be engineers or involved in engineering. Well, you can have half of those engineers back at the factory doing their job remotely and they're still on the payroll. Still on or the maybe payroll. they're through, if it's Audi, maybe it's through Volkswagen or through Porsche or another subsidiary and they're supplying data behind the scenes. Um, you never know how, how they have it structured, but uh, they need to maximize their, you know, their, they need to show their shareholders it's worth it. So every aspect of what they're doing has to have a return that's worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, the biggest aspect I would, well, I mean, I'm assuming the machine is the biggest aspect, but let's talk a little bit more. You, you know, I could sit here and read off all the different, and I'm sure you could, all the different accomplishments you had um, and continue to have. But what's, what makes, um, again, going back to a sports analogy, when you look at soccer, right? What makes a soccer player better than the other? The guy's faster. He's got a better, you know, he can go, he can kick with his left or his right better, whatever, right? What makes, you know, assuming that we're all getting into cars that have, not not all, I know there's um, the privateers, but at the top level, each of these companies is investing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And a lot of that probably goes into making the perfect machine technology. In most cases, I'm assuming within reason, somewhat equal, right? Like, I mean, there's not one company that has a special sauce that would really make a difference. So what is it the driver that really sets it apart? And if so, what about a driver that sets it apart? Everything changes. So like you might have the perfect setup for this track and then you go back a month later, a practice session later, a year later, and it's a good starting point, but it's going to be different. Take Le Mans, for example. It's a 13-mile-long track. Where uh, is seven it? Minutes in Le Mans, France. France, um, okay, okay. So you have a you have a 13-mile-long track with uh, about a three-and-a-half-minute lap time, or is it seven miles? I can't remember anymore. Yeah, seven, a little over seven miles in a three-minute, 30-lap time. You're going around, and it could be raining in one, you know, in four or five corners in this sector and dry in the other ones. And then the next lap, it could be raining in another portion of the track and dry in the others. So it's always going to be how well you react to it. There's so much from the strategy from the engineers to beginning ahead of the race, during the race, you know, after the race, analyzing where you could have been better, what's, what, how the car is deteriorating or how it's performing well or, or below what your expectations were uh, driver feedback to, support the data the engineers are seeing uh, it's constant development all the time yeah. so the cars will all be at a certain level but i would say the drivers are more uh even than the cars are like if any of the drivers at the top level you get in a car you should be within one two three tenths of a second of each other at this level of racing and what's going to come down to the difference is how well you were how well you were able to understand what the car is doing how well the engineers are able to understand what the car needs and uh, leading up to the event and at the event during the event. Um, it's, there's so many moving pieces to it all. Everything's got to be perfect for an exceptional race. Otherwise it's all going to be excellent and uh, a close fight. Like I take Daytona, for example, and in the DPI class, I think it was all the cars were on the lead lap by the end of the race and within seconds of each other, or, or even less than a second of each other. And what that tells you is, okay, you have the top class in motorsports fighting for 24 hours and having tires explode, having shit happen. And at the end of the race, you're 0.02 seconds behind second place or third place or first place. You're nose to tail. So that's how close the racing has become. When I started in this, um, my first 24-hour race, I was 16 years old, and that was in 2005. So I've been doing this now a little getting old shit um yeah we we had an h pattern gearbox it was a porsche uh, 996 we had to take care of the car uh, and we would go like 75 80 percent unless we needed track position and we needed to step on it uh the rest of the time was saving fuel good strategy conserve the car and then the last four hours or four hours of the race you fight, fight like hell with whatever you have left and whoever has the best car left as far as mechanical the clutches and slipping the gearbox is still sh shifting crisp 
everything you want, then you can have the best package to fight at the end of the race. Now the competition's so good, uh, it's basically you need you need luck, and every lap you have to go ten tenths, hang it on the line every single lap of the race. Every pit stop has to be perfect. A couple seconds lost on a pit stop is going to take you a half an hour to find on the track. Um, it's just flat out now. So it's the cars, the drivers, everything has to be on the limit, flat out from start to finish, which wasn't the case 15 years ago. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. I want to share a story um, and I want you to comment on it here because I, now I want to talk about you. So you, you've been successful, right? So you've done something right. And I don't know why this sticks out of my head, but um, I watched you race one time in uh, Watkins Glen and it was you and there was another fellow who actually ended up hanging out with us a little bit. He stayed at your parents' house that night. And it, it's not important, but um, what the story you told me was um, it was during a driver change, I think. So obviously when it's 24 hour race, there's different drivers that get in and out of the car and you have to driver change. And so you had said when he was getting out of the car, um, the wind, the window that he got in and out of got stuck. Um, something got stuck, one of the netting or something, and he was fumbling with it and he kind of got a little overwhelmed that he was doing this and it took five seconds, right? Five seconds. And you were like in for you in the, the, telling the story from your point of view, you explained to me and you said, whereas for me, I'm able to slow it down in my mind and say, okay, it's stuck. It's stuck here. I'm going to move it here, move this, and I'm out of the car in two seconds. And um, so I guess that leads me to a lot of this from a driver perspective is, is mental and most sports are, but how would you assign percentages so if you got is it 50 mental and because there is physical i mean if you're sitting in a car pulling the pulling the fucking shift the the you know pulling down the um the throttle whatever it is you you know the words better than me but i mean that's physically too right so how would you assign percentages um to each and where do you think you excel compared to other drivers that allow you to to um kind of slow things down yeah i think things up Experience training comes into play for how to process things. Uh, just like any sport, mental uh, preparation is critical. Yeah. You have to know how to handle yourself in any situation. Um, even if you don't know how to get through it and you haven't thought about it before, you still have to know how to approach it properly and get through it right, um, if that makes any sense. Um, everything kind of slips. How do you do that? Personally, how do you mentally prepare for a race? Well, it I'll get to that in a minute, kind of with what today's cars require uh, mentally to drive um, because it has changed so much. But yeah, for a driver change, you know, it should always be pretty calm and, and usually calm is fast for a driver change. Um, today, in like the car I just raced uh, last month in Daytona, the prototype LMP2 car, we can do driver changes in 16 seconds. So we come into the box, into the pit lane, uh, we stop at the mark, car has to go off. You have to undo your harness, which has five seat belts. Uh, you have to um, disconnect your radio, disconnect your water, open the door, jump out. You have a tire changer to one side. You have a fuel guy on the other side. So you have a window maybe of like two feet to get out. There's another guy. As you get out, you're ripping out your seat insert. Another guy is grabbing his seat insert and jumping in, getting his seat insert done. Jumping into the car, there's a driver helper to uh, get the belt salt done up. Uh, usually at that point, the driver helper has to bail because we're running out of time. The driver has to finish their radio, their water, do the fuel reset, um, communicate with the spotters and engineer that they have radio contact, uh, change the engine maps for exiting pit lane, make sure pit limiter's on, um, check out the TC settings before you, before you leave because generally you're on cold tires, cold brakes, so you need to adjust a lot of settings. Um, and you do that all within 16 to 20 seconds. <laughs> so that's a driver change. Um, as far as like the ability, like mentally or physically, um, yeah, a large portion is, is mentally you're playing games with other drivers out there with moving the air, especially Daytona where you can do side drafts and, um, you can move cars by moving. If you're up high and you move down on them or down low or wherever, but if you move harshly against them and, and come up right alongside of them, you can almost move their car, a whole car lane over from pushing the air against their car and giving them a, a pretty good moment to hang on to the car and to not crash. So you're playing games with the other drivers. You're going in their blind spots. You're flashing your lights. You're, you're 
being obnoxious as you can behind them to make them seem like, why the hell am I going so slow and holding you up? Um, and really start to get into that guy's head. Um, everything you can do to get into the other people's head is what it's all about. And also playing your own strategy properly, knowing where the other cards are on track, what your strategy is and what strategy might be changing for you. Uh, do you need to save fuel and, and lift uh, a little bit earlier and break later then uh, to save fuel so you have a fuel target window you're trying to manage as well so that you're op you have your optimal lap time, but you're also managing the fuel the the um, the fuel the fuel you're using. Um, you, you know you can burn through a lot of fuel and have be the fastest car out there, but if you do that, uh, you're going to have to pit more frequently. And over the course of a 24 hour race, if you have to have one or two extra stops, that could just take you out of contention in itself. So you have to learn how to drive the car out the limit with being as efficient as possible. Um, and being as consistent and perfect every single lap, every single corner, if you want to be in at the end of the race. And you can't have any mistakes. Going off the track, dropping a wheel, touching another car, the damage that that could cause could really make your dip, uh, your race difficult or just a nightmare in general. Uh, you know, Just a light piece of debris that hit the front of our car three laps in at Daytona um, this year, shifted the aero balance 6% to the rear of the car. And we also had a damper fail at night and the combination of the aero balance changing and the damper failing, it was like being on a jackhammer going around the banking. You know, you're getting slammed against the ground so hard on the banking, it's taking your breath away every impact and you're, you're catching your breath by the time you get to turn one. Um, and all that's happening at 190 to 200 miles an hour. Um, and, and usually in close racing, because at Daytona, it's a three-and-a-half-mile-long track with 60 cars. Le Mans, you have 60 cars, but it's seven-and-a-half miles. So it's much more spread out. Mm. Um, at Daytona, it's a busy, busy race. Um, is that why Daytona is such a famous raceway? Because of the size of it? Or is it just that it happened to be the first one on the map? No, it, it, Daytona is famous because of NASCAR. They originally raced on the Daytona beaches. And then they moved to the Speedway. And then uh, shortly thereafter, they started doing the 24 hours of Daytona where they did the infield as well. And you go out onto the banking. Um, so the sports car racing, of course, you turn left and right and everything else. Um, so, yeah, a big part of it's mental. Um, as far as the physical aspect, like the GT cars, which you saw me drive at Watkins Glen, I think I was driving for Corvette at the time. Um, that I was the biggest difference is like I would say a GT car is like cardio. You're moving the wheel, you're, you're, you're moving the steering wheel so quickly all the time, making saves and corrections um, and hustling in the car. It feels like cardio. You're, you're coming out drenched in sweat. It's, it's, a, it's not so much of a physical, um, strenuous, like G-force load type exercise. It's, it's uh, more, more endurance and cardio. Now, when you get into, um, and it's interesting too, because you have some of the teams like in the U.S., you're allowed to get um, IVs before the race. And during the race, which in Europe you're not allowed to do, um, because of the amount of water you lose during the, you know, you could lose 10 pounds in a race in just water. It's, wow. you're just soaked. Um, and, and it's not the temperature, it's just physically what it takes to drive these cars. And then in the, in the prototype, it's muscle. Uh, if you notice, like Jimmy Johnson, seven-time NASCAR champion, like arguably one of the best NASCAR drivers we've ever seen, he jumped in a prototype at Daytona this year and in preparation for driving some IndyCar races this year. And he had to put foam blocks on his helmet on the back and side of it because he couldn't physically hold his neck up in the car because of the G-forces that these cars can pull now. With how late you can break and, and what you can carry into a corner as far as cornering speed, I think, you know, look at Watkins Glen, for example, uh, turn one. I believe we're going through turn one at 140 miles an hour in the prototype in 2019. That's and NASCAR, insane. Is going, and NASCAR is going through that corner at like 75 miles an hour. So they have to stop the car, do the downshift, look for the apex, turn, all while they're banging into each other and crashing and going four wide and it's tight, close racing because it's the spec class. In our series, it's you make the decision, you make the steering input, you have all your systems set up. Um, as far as the technology the car offers you to play with, you make the commitment and 
what you did back there 200 yards ago is going to determine where you end up after the corner. And you can't correct it or save it at that point. It's, it's going to, you have a chance to try to, and maybe you can, but it's, it's usually not possible because you have to make that commitment early and hope you get it right. If you turn in just a split second later, you might be off the apex by a couple of feet. And then that means you're in the wall. Um, it's just the amount of speed that these cars can take in. We're seeing G-force, three to four G-forces in a corner, uh, lateral G-forces and vertical G-forces, which is, you know, the fighter jets face three to, I think it's like seven G-forces, and they're blacking out. And there was, I forget the one IndyCar race, but I think it was, I forget the oval track they were on. They canceled the event because drivers were blacking out during the race. And still, like waking up, and like they'd come in and say, "I don't really remember what happened," and and it turned out they were they the amount of g forces are pulling in a corner, blood flow starts to change. You're doing your g force breathing. You're holding your breath, getting the belts tight so you can feel the response of the car through the belts more. You you physically you can the human body can only withstand so many g forces before you go unconscious. Well, the current day cars, from sports cars to F1, are pushing that envelope. Wow. You know, razor thin right now. And it's physically what you have to do every single corner and break zone um, and go through with a G-force impact. I mean, it's one G is one times your body weight. So when you're doing three, four Gs every single corner um, at speeds of 100 plus miles an hour and close to 200 miles an hour often, and every decision has to be perfect, uh, that's where you start to swap positions because you do start to make some mistakes. But you can't make a mistake big enough. That means you go one wheel off the track or have, an, or have a crash. Um, the cars are, you know, they're fragile. You have to protect them. So, so G, when you say G, just because um, I didn't really, I mean, I know that it means fast. But when you say one times your weight, so a G, G4 would be my weight times four, that force pushing against me. Correct. So like a, a yeah. like that, a weight that size, Jesus Christ. So do you, do you see a future where um, – there's not a racer in the car. I mean, cause these cars, you know, t- technology is not going to slow down. Do you see a, a future where there's oh, not a person in the car? No one wants to see that. I think they will, you know, they've had that where they've done a robotic car and I think it was like 15 seconds a lap slower and ended up crashing. Um, <laughs> I think they want, there's something about for the fans. I think uh, the risk factor seeing what's going on and, and the chances people are taking and also the mistakes people make from human error. Um, I think people enjoy that. So, um, and the tech, the safety, the technology has got, you know, improved every single year in motorsports, um, to where you can have a pretty violent crash and still walk away, um, with, you know, usually nothing more than a concussion. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing just the level of what racing has become today to, to drive the prototype at Daytona, uh, the manual to, to understand the dash, the steering wheel and how the car everything you need to know about the car is over a hundred pages. And then every session you do a debrief with your engineers, you get out of the car during the race, you're getting a debrief with the engineers. They're looking at live telemetry uh, from thousands of sensors and saying, well, if you, if you take a little bit less of this curb here, you, you'll have a little less understeer here, or you, you can't take that much curb there. It's upsetting the shocks too much and, and you're risking the car. Um, you know, they'll find different ways or they'll see the aero balance change or whatever else might be changing or, or a concern. Maybe it's engine, um, engine issues. Like we started losing oil in the last four hours of the race and they knew about it six hours before that, where they started seeing, uh, pressures drop and, and changes happen. Um, it's just amazing the data that these engineers can work with and what they can do with it. And then in turn, what they can relate to you. Um, I would say the driver's ability to understand the manual on how to drive the car and the steering, understand the controls you have on the steering wheel and on the dash. If you can utilize those controls perfectly, that's got to be worth at least two seconds uh, a lap. It's, it's amazing. It's when I first started racing, we had a radio button on the wheel and that was it. And an H pattern gearbox. Now we have paddle shift. We have 35 different buttons on the wheel. We have dials that change the different settings settings with inside of those dials. You can adjust differential, TC gain, TC slip, uh, engine settings, fuel settings, everything. So you can adjust uh, anything you can imagine. And knowing how to do that um, gives you a big advantage. And I think that's, it's interesting, like the generation coming up in racing today, 
Um, you know, they were born in 2000, 2000 to 2005. Um, big gamers usually. And, yeah. and they're just so good with their hands and, and that type of response and reaction. Um, it's, it, it's interesting to see them come and be like, Oh, this is, this is normal. This is cool. Whereas like my generation and even the earlier generations are like, Oh, this is something we have to learn. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that, um, just how the cars develop over time and how you have to react to them um, and utilize everything that they give you. Uh, it's just, it's the technology is, is honestly, it rivals NASA. It's amazing what, and a lot of the parts coincide fuel flow mixtures and, and um, or fuel flow counters to understand like how much to restrict fuel flow to an exact degree uh, or exact pattern. And those sensors are in everything from our street cars to F1 to sports cars to, to space shuttles and more. So all the technology is shared and, and advanced all the time. Yeah. You know, it's a good point. So for me, I would consider myself pretty athletic, um, you know, when it comes to playing sports. But then when I get like a PS, and I haven't played PS3 or whatever the hell is out there, Xbox, but then you get that and it's like, you, the the person that you're controlling is like the most unathletic person. And then I have I've grown up with friends that aren't athletic, but they're great gamers. And you watch them navigate in a screen, and it's unbelievable. So you can definitely see that. That's um, that's interesting that you kind of bring that up. Yeah, yeah it's with the it's, uh, with the drivers, with the engineers. Yeah, the smarter you can be, the more relaxed you can be. But you still need to have that energy to you know not be complacent. You have to want to fight. Um, yeah. Yes, you want to find the perfect chemistry for it all, and and that's when you get the winning package. Um, so a lot of new teams are, or teams that are developing um, new new cars, new chassis, um, or have a younger driver mix. Where I fit in at this point in my career is that I've been doing this for so long. I can usually help with the setup, the engineering, um, the development of the car, coaching the other drivers if need be, but also, especially if they're young, fast talents of tomorrow, helping them not lose their feet off the ground during the first big race you're doing at Daytona or wherever it might be and helping them understand what to expect. Here's what you need to do. You should go do this or that now. Like just, you know, even in the last example with this Daytona race, um, one of my teammates, he's up and coming, Devlin De Francesco in IndyCar. Um, he's doing Indy Lights this year. He'll be in IndyCar in no time. Very talented, very fast. He's done three. This is his third race now, um, Daytona 24-hour race. But even him, you know, at 21 years old, uh, I think I slept maybe an hour during a 24-hour race. Well, that was still a different game back then. So looking at it now, it's like sleep is critical. Like it, if the fresher you can be mentally gives you an advantage. Every advantage you can get, you need. So it's not about like, okay, I got out of the car. My adrenaline's going crazy. I'm going to watch a couple hours from the pit box and talk to my engineers and how as much as you want to do that, you have to grab them and say, go back to the motorhome. Do your meal, do your shake, hydrate, sleep, and we'll see you in six hours or four hours or three hours, whatever it is. And it's like you have to be thinking about tomorrow because really for a 24-hour race, you're up for 40 hours. The race started at 4.30. Well, we had to begin activities at 8 a.m. So you're up at 6.30, showering, getting ready. You're up from 6.30. Race starts at 4.30. You're not done until 4.30 the next day. And then after that, I mean, you're shot. And then you go and do whatever else too. So it's like by the end of the Sunday, you're just a zombie. Yeah. Uh, the 24 hour races are, are just a beast of a race. Um, especially at the level they need to be raced at today compared to uh, back in the day where you were conserving equipment and you could come into the pits and sit there for four minutes or five minutes and make repairs to the car that you just crashed and, and not lose a position because at the next position is five laps behind you. Now you're talking tenths of a second behind you so everybody you know from first to tenth place might be a second yeah so that's insane you can't can't lose anywhere and as far as like how to prepare for it there's the training for racing has improved dramatically like there was always good mental um mental preparation and training facilities around as far as reaction timing and just the mental approach you take into the weekend um but that's even developed since then. So you have your physio, you have your nutritionist, you have your um, you have your team doctor if you need anything. Uh, you have everything planned out for the week ahead and what you're going to be doing. And then off season, 
you have to, sometimes the teams provide it, sometimes they don't, but you have to do it on your own. If not, sometimes the manufacturers have their own camps where they do it. Um, and it's fitness camps where you're, they're taking, uh, taking blood to see how much lactose you have, how much, uh, how, uh, how much glucose you have. Um, you know, they're putting the mass on you to see how you're breathing over long stints on a bike or running. Um, everything is censored and data driven, uh, reaction timing. Um, there's some amazing things with reaction timing now where you have sensors on the wall and you touch and try to get the right colors, the right sensors at the right times, take it a step further and put goggles on that flash like a strobe light in your eye. So you have to do it with limited vision or limited hearing. And it just tries to simulate the harshest possible environment for you to have the optimal reaction time and the right method of thinking. Um, and there's exercises you do too, to try to activate the right and left side of your brain to make sure you're maximizing how you, how you process the information as well um, before you get into the car um, and during the race. And, um, and when you get out of the race, making sure you get work done because everything's cramped up and tightens and, and, and knots, um, you know, especially if the race are getting ready to do the 12 hours of Sebring in March, um, it's just a grueling, grueling race. That one is on a, uh, an airstrip. So it's concrete blocks that was used during World War II. It's an abandoned airport. There's still an active airport right next door to it. But the bumps, like, I don't, I think every single driver that leaves that track leaves with a concussion. It's just like, just from driving the track, it's watch some onboard footage of cars at, at Sebring and you'll understand like the head crashing against the headrest multiple times per corner you lose your vision constantly around the track and you're flying it's a, it's a fast track super bumpy it's part of the historical nature of that track it's it's um it's a very significant track in, in our type of racing what's the name um, so of it we'll never, uh, sebring sebring so we'll never, florida yeah sebring florida i got it um so we'll never pave it um the concrete they always say you know respect the bumps but it's it's amazing what the cars go through at that track um, and the abuse it does to the cars, but also to the to the drivers. You'll come out of that race as black and blue from getting slammed against things you never knew existed in the car. Um, and the cars itself, like we'll do tests. You obviously do wind tunnel tests. You do shaker rig tests. So we'll have the car strapped down to a platform, and it simulates every single bump in live time to what the car would go through in a full lap at the track. So the engineers can watch the car, the suspension move, the tires move as if it was going around the track in a, in a stationary room. And when you see what the car goes through in that setting versus seeing it on the track, you're like, holy shit, how is this thing going to not just disintegrate after Explode. one lap? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, so I guess coming back to you, I mean, you know, you're – like rookie of the year in a way, right? Like you're the youngest guy, first guy to do whatever. Um, talk a little bit more about your career in this. I mean, you're still racing now, but you also run a business. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit more about you and how you fit into all this and how many concussions you've had. <laughs> oh, uh, too many. Um, yeah. So I, obviously I started in go-karts. Um, I won a scholarship program there, which helped me get into, uh, it might help me in the first year of cars. Um, my parents helped me in the first year of cars with their business too. Um, and that in 2005 got me the 2006 gig, um, which went to 2006, 2007. And then that team went under and I ended up getting picked up by another team for three years for that with Barnbach and Lowell's. Uh, but those were two, the, the two biggest Porsche teams in a half a decade. And I was fortunate enough to drive for both of them. Um, because of two different scholarships. I won from the go-karts and then again with, uh, in what does that mean to win a scholarship? Like, what is that? I mean, it's just like, can you explain that a little bit? Backing, backing. Okay. It's, okay. Uh, so it's just financial backing. Hey, you're a good racer. You've won money. Now, yeah. does the backing go to you as like a payday or does it go to like the car manufacturer to help support the that, I pick or that they help me pick? And, uh, okay. that's what it goes. So, but I also had to find my own sponsors grant. Like there was uh, five to 10 years where, you know, you're knocking on companies. Non the more you can bring to a team, the more valuable you are. Wow. So it's quite an individual yeah. approach in that sense. Yeah. Like you're responsible for bringing, here's what I, you know, yeah, you bring in your own brand. 
Yeah, unless you get picked up by a factory right off the bat, which you're doing tryouts for and hopefully trying to get, um, if you're lucky enough to even get a tryout. Um, but yeah, anything you can bring to a team adds value. So if you're good with engineering, if you're good with car development, if you have good experience and, and knowledge, if you're fast, any if you're marketable, any of those any of those things you can bring to a team adds major value. So I, if I can bring some sponsors, that's huge. Um, so in 2005, I was able to get Salem's Hot Dogs, which uh, also got them into every NASCAR track in in, uh, in America, um, as for, as uh, all their vending stations and whatnot. Um, and they're out of Buffalo, New York. So Salem's is still involved in motorsports and still involved with NASCAR. Um, but you know that's just one of one of many companies we have. So you have to sell to them. I guess so I'm understanding this. You have to go sell yourself to them. And the way you do that is by saying, I'm a good driver and I'm going to be part of these races on these teams, but you need to sponsor me. And then once you get the okay, it's like you're kind of selling both sides, right? Correct. So you, you, you get the, uh, you work on your presentation that you create, you work on it with the teams that you're interested in driving for. You work on it with the series to help get all of the analytics and, and demographics and data that you need from a media kit yeah. um, to give the right information. And then you go and present to thousands of companies um, and see what you can get. And you might do a thousand companies and only get 10. Um, it's harder unless your name's Andretti or Ray Hall or Gordon or Johnson, you know, the top names, um, it's easier. Um, but when you're, when you're starting off, you, you really have to hustle and try to get the meetings. And, and usually a lot of people just, you know, I don't know if they feel bad for you or what, but they usually give you something, um, or kick out the door. It's one of the two. Um, but it's, it's part of it. You know, I think that helped a lot with everything else I've done in life. It's just, you know, you get the door slammed in your face and you go to the next one. Um, and you know, you're pitching things to everything from, the hot dog company down the road to uh, Margaritaville and showing them what their car could look like and what the return could be on their marketing and, and what else it could do for them. Um, and and you, you hope you can win some there. Um, and as far as like driving too, like what else, the biggest difference for me at this point, not doing it full time, like when you knew me in college, um, you know, it's much easier. I could take tests before I go and everything else. I mean, there's all focus on racing. Um, in 2010, that took a back seat because my dad had a brain tumor and, and I just finished JU. Um, mm-hmm. And so I immediately took, flew back to, uh, to help with the company and to dive in and, and to uh, I jumped right into sales and helped kind of keep things going while, while he was out and recovering and he's recovered. Um, but during that time, I realized I had a passion for the business, you know, much greater than I had ever experienced doing um, Weekends and or not weekends, but uh, holidays and, and summer vacations um, and working at you know those days, uh, you know there's a whole competitive nature to business that you start to learn and understand and appreciate and it drives you. Um, and knowing that you can't race forever is probably a smart decision. So I, I really focused a lot on that as well from 2010 forward. Um, but I'm able to still keep my foot in racing and still get rides where uh, where I can still. I can still get coaching gigs and, and get a nice check. I can uh, still show up to the top races and, and race for free. Um, I'm sure at some point, in, you know, hopefully far off, I'll have to start writing uh, checks. Um, but right now I'm able to negotiate contracts and still uh, negotiate ways to get Rembrandt charms on the car, um, which is valuable to our family business and what we do. Um, so we try, to, we try to always help be involved in motorsports and how we can, but keep a foot in too. And it's, it's kind of uh, like you paid your dues, you've been here long enough, and you bring it up to the table where we'll use you in this capacity. And usually I get called in now for the longer races where they need a third driver or fourth driver. Um, and that allows me to race four, four or five times a year at a top level. And then I do a bunch of coaching events and amateur, like vintage historic racing events um, with other people just to keep my foot in the door a little more. Um, the closest thing I could relate it to is like, imagine any other sport where you're not doing it all the time. And that's, that's a big difference. Like when I did it almost every weekend, when you knew me in college, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was, I was at a race at least two weekends a month yeah. or in a car at least two weekends a month. And now it's much different. So having to be fast on the first lap you get in the car is not as easy as it was then. So it takes a little bit, to get the rust off, get dialed back in, especially if it's a new car. 
um, or new team, it takes a little bit to kind of brush everything off and get sharp and be ready to go. And usually by the race, you're, you're right on point. But it's not like it used to be where you could go in and be balls to the wall first lap and, you know, top of the timing charts. So now it's like, okay, you come out, you're 10th, and then next session you're 6th, and next session you're 4th, and by the race you're fighting for 1st. So that's what you have to adjust. You have to adjust your expectations going into the weekend and, and kind of the approach you want to take. Otherwise, mentally, you are down on yourself. You're saying, what the hell's going on? Um, so you have to have different expectations going in and what your strengths are. And then if you follow the right process, you'll be as fast as you need to be, um, as fast as the, the top guys um, by by the race or by qualifying, whenever you need to be. But you take the approach a little differently. So maybe um, because you haven't driven that car as often or ever, you don't know how it's going to react. And when everything is as, as critical as it is now for, you know, right on the money, making accurate decisions, accurate movements, you can't, the margin of error has to be a little bit greater as you're getting up to speed. So you have to give yourself a little bit of a cushion, whereas if you do it every weekend, you know exactly where that cushion is everywhere, and you just go for it. So you have to push the envelope, and then by the time you get to the, that moment, whether it's qualifying or the race, you should have used up all of that safety net and know exactly where the limits of the car are and your limits are and be on pace. Otherwise, it's going to be a hell of a weekend, and you're going to be struggling, and it sucks. Um but that's something you never had to deal with before. It's it's, um, it's much harder. So, like, my teammates at Daytona, one of my teammates made the jump into a prototype for the first time after driving uh, GT cars, which is still a factory-built race car, very challenging to drive and very fast. The prototype is another level. It's um, it's basically a Formula like a Formula One Indy car with fenders. And amazing. It's, it's hard to comprehend what the car can do mentally. Like, it it defies physics in some senses to like, it shouldn't be able to break this late or it shouldn't be able to carry the speed through the corner, but it does. So you have to just convince yourself that it's going to work and do it. And hopefully it works. Um, and, he, and he goes, man, I feel like, I feel like a gentleman driver because it's like tough to get up to speed. I'm like, well, welcome to club. You know what it's like now, not driving every weekend and running a business and jumping in cold and having to figure it out. Like that's, he goes, oh, shit, that's, that's a lot harder. He goes, normally I'm so fast out of the gate in the GT car. And I'm like, it's, it'll come. And it did come and he was very quick in the race. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just it. If you're not, the seat time makes a big difference. So if you're playing basketball or baseball or football or soccer multiple times per month or week, whatever it is, the more you do it, the better you're going to be. And the less of that bullshit you got to get through before you get to that top level. You don't have to brush off the rust or get comfortable again and figure it out. Um, so that's that's the big difference between like 15 years ago and now is uh, just managing that margin of error and making sure that I, I give myself enough that I don't crash a car in practice or qualifying and that by the race, I'm using 100% of what I can get out of the car. Yeah, and I mean, to, to your, it, the, more, the more I hear you talk about it, it is like it's similar to a lot of other sports, right? Because to your point, it's like you put M- Michael Jordan on a basketball court right now with a lot of like he's not going to keep up with everyone. But if he's smart enough to know that and he's smart enough to understand I don't need to, I need to pick my spots and be smart about when I take my shots and understand what my strengths are. It's just it's a different strategy, right? And it's not um, a good or bad one. It's just, you know, because there's a lot that um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a veteran strategy, I guess you're officially at 30, whatever you are. You're a, yeah. You're an old guy and a veteran, man. That's, that must be. And so you have two boys. Um, do you want them to get into racing? Is that, uh, what are your thoughts it's on that? I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, what it takes to get into racing now It's it's a long investment from time to, uh, financially to get them going um if they want to do it i'll support them um problem is where i am in buffalo new york uh the one of the we had a great great go-kart track where you could start out about a half hour away and it closed about 10 years ago it's overgrown with weeds and trees now the track is destroyed it's not salvageable um so the closest place they could go for training and go-karting would be uh two hours away so 
it's one of those things that's like, it's almost not possible. Um, yeah. you know, I could set up cones in our office parking lot and teach them some of the fundamentals and go from there and get them into cars at a later stage. But unless they express interest in it, like, I don't know, do I really want to put them in go-karts at six, five or six, take it, move, you know, move Amanda and the kids over to Europe and go to the UK and start racing there and get them and never see them. And, you know, it's a whole different aspect of the family. Like I enjoy skiing with them every weekend in the winter. Um, in the summer we do a bunch of stuff too. And now we're thinking maybe we get a boat and go wake surfing with them every weekend and all these things you can do as a family, you know, um, without the go-kart track here, it's pretty tough, um, to get started into it. So if they want to do it, we'll, we'll find a way, um, to make it happen. But, um, it's not as easy as it was when I was here just because of the go-kart track issue. Um, and, and also like the costs that have, have gotten involved now, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I remember in go-karting where like I was working out of my parents' minivan and like had a tool chest on wheels and like two different carts I ran in two different classes and like different axles and engines and everything else. And I would, and I was my own mechanic and you'd see these teams with the, you know, the names, the famous names in racing and their kids coming out with like 18 wheelers and like engineers and multiple chassis that if that chassis didn't work, they'd grab another chassis instead of working on it. And, you know, I'm competing with a $10,000 a year budget and they're coming in with a half a million dollar a year budget. And it's like now at this level, everyone's doing it. They have everyone's got the half a mil. Yeah. At that age. And it's like, holy shit. So, you know, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it the way I did it. And they're going to know how to learn the engineering aspect behind it and turn wrenches on it and figure it out. And it doesn't matter what they accomplish in go-karts. It's just a matter if they accomplish the race craft, the speed, the mechanical and, the, and engineering aspect of it. And uh, eventually get them into cars and maybe at a, I would say, go to a racing school and start coaching and uh, get seat time. That's the easiest way you can get seat time. And work at a go-kart track too. So go-kart tracks are great. Um, yeah, the go-karts are amazing. It's a motorcycle engine. You can go 140 miles an hour in a go-kart. Um, and the G-forces are quite strong in a go-kart. You'll, you'll hit two Gs in a go-kart. Um, even three. Um, so it, it, there's ways to do it, but it depends if they want to do it because there's a lot involved. You travel a lot being in Buffalo, New York. You know, if we were in Florida, there's plenty of options. Um, and same thing for the racing. Like I say, everyone goes to the UK. Well, here you also have Indianapolis and Charlotte are the main hubs for racing. You have the Indy 500, so a lot of the IndyCar teams are based out of Indy. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of the NASCAR teams based out of Charlotte and, and North Carolina. Um, so if you're around those hubs, like, you know, that's where you need to be, really, um, if you want to take that approach. And now you have to make that decision, be, you know, quite early into the kid's life. Um, not to say it's not possible. I've seen people, you know, skip the go-karting entirely and just do the driver schools, do amateur driving, get the skill craft they need there and then make it. But it's much, I don't know if it's much harder, but it's, a, it's an unconventional route that um, I wouldn't know how to really walk them through compared to starting with the go-karts and going in the right direction. Kind of um, working your way through it. Yeah. So it's, it's a little different. I'm, I'm honestly hoping they, uh, they love ski racing. Um, I love skiing and snowboarding and so does Amanda now. Um, and the kids, you know, both kids were on skis before they were a year old. Um, so if, if they want to do that, our, uh, where we go skiing, they've turned out a lot of Olympic athletes and, uh, weren't you in an Olympic development program for snowboarding? Uh, Lake Placid, we, we worked at the Olympic, uh, the Olympic center there for, uh, training with, with their aerials into the pools and trampolines and everything. Yeah. When I was coach, when I was coaching and also when I was competing on the USASA. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's another hour long session, uh, that we can do about <laughs> competing your way through snowboarding, but wow, that's something. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping they, they, you know, I don't want to be that dad that like you see them on the weekend yelling at their kid and like just more into it than their kids are like that's the first way to get them uninterested and just blow a ton of money and piss them off and not have a good relationship it's like whatever they want i want them to do something that they like that they're good at and just be involved in all sports initially and then figure out where their strengths are and just hone in on and go and compete everything from school to the sports everything like you know i just always look at it like a competition to where you want to do your best but not to be an asshole. You don't want to be like, ah, you know, I'm better than, no, you have to have good, uh, 
sportsmanship. And, yeah, sportsmanship. Yeah, that's like, a good word. I think you have to look at it, you know, in, in today's world, like what you want to accomplish. Like the sooner they understand that, like, it's not given to you and you have to earn it. And everything from sports to school to jobs, you have to work your ass off if you want to get where you want to be. And what you put into it is what you'll get out of it for the most most of the time. Um, so if, whatever they want to do, and if they don't want to compete at that at any level in any sport, that's fine too. But they have to. Uh, they're certainly not going to be thirty years old living in the basement. They'll have to. Uh, <laughs> you know, they'll have to go do something with their lives and and uh, be good, upstanding citizens, and, and hopefully doing something successfully. Yeah, I love it, man. Well, uh, look, I mean, we're at an hour here. Um, I, to be honest, I have a list of questions that we didn't even get to cause we were just got pretty enamored and talking about racing, which I think is great. Um, so let's, let me kind of end here. If people are interested in learning more about you, um, racing, uh, which I'm sure some people are, uh, would you put them to, where, where would you point them? Would it be on like, follow you on Instagram or what, what do you, what do you recommend? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. They can just hit me up, send me a message. I always like talking about racing, so racing, work, anything. So happy to uh, happy to talk to anyone, and uh, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. <laughs>